So the last, uh, last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at a whole bunch of questions that I received uh, while we were doing the Sermons by Request series this summer about why we do what we do uh, at Southern Hills Evangelical Free Church. Um, some people thought maybe some of the things we do were a little uh, different than other churches, a little strange, a little weird, um, you know. I've heard that the church tends to take on the personality of their pastor, so that's probably where the weird part comes in. But, you know, they didn't have questions about everything, mostly about uh, uh, aspects of our, how we do our service and this type of thing. But there were some uh, questions uh, on some other topics as well. And over the last two Sundays, as we've gone through those, I've just been crossing off all the ones we've covered so far and hoping to finish the rest uh, today. And the questions that we have left are these. What is acceptable worship? Should we raise our hands? Should we be using instruments? Why do we pass an offering plate? What is an acceptable tithe to God? How should a person behave in church? Do you have to be baptized to be a member? What does membership mean and why is that important? As uh, in all the other questions we've uh, looked at and covered so far, any of these, each of these, could be a sermon in and of themselves, but instead uh, we're going to group them all together and just briefly highlight uh, why we do what we do. And to get us started this morning, I'd like you to open your Bibles, turn to the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles chapter 29. Second Chronicles 29, we're going to start with the question of worship, and that's the focus of these verses as well. And it says this, Second Chronicles 29, uh, verses 28 through 30 say, while the whole assembly worshiped, the singers also sang and the trumpets sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now, at the completion of the burnt offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshiped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy, bowed down, and worshiped. Father God, we are so thankful for the guidance your word gives us. We're thankful for this opportunity to come together like this and to worship you um, and, and to look to your word for life, for godliness, for training. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. May your Holy Spirit be free to move in our hearts and minds today according to your good pleasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so the, the question is, what is acceptable worship? But I believe that actually begs an even more basic question uh, than that, which is, what is worship? I mean, if somebody who had absolutely no church background, right, they had never been to church before, didn't know anything about Christianity, and if they came up to you and stopped you on the street and, and, and asked you, what does it mean to worship your God? How, how do you worship Him? What would you say? I, I, I think how you answer that question could possibly uh, depend a little bit on your church background. I mean, if you're charismatic, Pentecostal, you might answer that question a little different than, say, an Episcopalian or a, a Lutheran. When I was in uh, college, I, I went up to college in the, 
the Pacific Northwest there and, and, and not too far from Seattle and, and uh, one holiday weekend for something, uh, uh, some friends of our family invited me to come down and stay with them. The, the guy was the, or my dad was the best uh, man at this guy's wedding and they had a daughter that was about my age and she invited me to go to church with her on Sunday. Her parents didn't go to church anymore. They just stayed home and watched some preacher on TV. But, but her church was a, a very uh, strong, charismatic one. And I'd never been to anything like that, so I said, sure, I, I, I'll like to go with you. And so we went uh, for Sunday school to their college-age class. It was a huge church. Their college-age class had about 100 people in it. And, and the teacher there uh, gave uh, a really good uh, Bible lesson. And I thought to myself, hmm, this doesn't seem very different than what I'm used to. But then things changed suddenly when the leader said, before I close in prayer, I want us to take a few minutes to worship the Lord. And, and before I could even begin to process that statement and try to figure out what he meant by that, the entire area just erupted into what appeared to me at least, from my perspective, to be chaos. I mean, there were people shouting out and speaking in tongues all over the room. Uh, there were uh, several people I saw get up and move around and go lay hands on other people and begin praying over them and prophesying and, uh, over them and this type of thing. Uh, there was a couple people laying on the floor in different places. I didn't know what they were doing. And uh, uh, there, was, there was a girl on the chair behind me uh, on the chair. She stood up on the chair behind me and, and, and started uh, doing this and singing some song in tongues. And, and uh, then that's when I realized there were several different people singing at different points around the room, some in, in a language I understood and, and some not and, and this type of thing. And uh, there were several people who were kneeling and some were weeping and, and, and there was just stuff happening all over the room. And uh, after several minutes of this, uh, the teacher began uh, his closing prayer and, and it all just stopped. And uh, I, I can tell you what I wasn't doing during those few minutes. I was not worshiping God. I was too busy watching everything that was going on around me, mostly in a state of flabbergation, I'm not sure if that's really a word, but that's the state I was in, uh, um, you know, and I was actually also a little bit worried, right, because I, I, I was determining, you know, in my mind, are there people watching me and wondering why I'm not doing anything, you know, and so it was, it was kind of uncomfortable feeling. So what is worship? In that uh, particular church, it apparently meant a number of different activities. I know that there are a great number of people who would equate worship with singing. And they could use some verses like what we looked at this morning uh, to give some biblical support for that position. Take, take a look at this little snapshot again uh, of worship service from the Old Testament, right? It says, When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, while the whole assembly worshipped. The singers also sang and the trumpets sounded. So, so music and singing if you'll 
pardon the pun, were instrumental to the worship of that service. But that maybe answers one more question that I received there. Should we use musical instruments as part of a worship service? And there might be a great number of you in here who are saying, what? Well, why not? Because you've never known anything. Any church you've ever attended has always used musical instruments. But there are a number of churches out there today who do not use them. And it may surprise others of you to find out that almost all Protestant churches did not use or allow musical instruments for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, uh, it was really into the 1800s and, and uh, even into the 1900s before uh, a lot of churches started using them. Um, the, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon with, with a huge church of around 10,000 people would not allow a musical instrument in his church. John Calvin, the founder of Presbyterian Church, and Martin Luther were adamantly against them. In fact, their whole attitude could be summed up uh, by John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, who said, quote, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. <laughs> I've, I've read uh, many of the arguments people use to oppose the use of instruments, did some study back in that and, and what that was all about, and they didn't want instruments as part of church or worship. And basically, all the arguments I came across boiled down to three main ones. Uh, number one, they never did it that way before, so we're not going to do it. Number two, there is a command for singing in the New Testament, but no command to use instruments. And so we won't do it since it's not commanded. And number three, there is no verse, no record in Scripture, no example in the New Testament of any New Testament church using instruments. And so since we don't see them doing it, we won't do it. Uh, in fact, they say we want to be like a New Testament church and, and not do any of those things. And, and that first reason they give, that's really just based on tradition, right? I mean, that's putting in, into employ, that's accepting those eight words that are often used to help kill a church, which is, we have never done it that way before. Um, and, and they're just accepting that. If we haven't done it before, then we shouldn't. The second and third reasons are attempts to uh, make a, a biblical case uh, against them, but... Uh, they are really built on faulty reasoning and thinking. Um, the, the second reason says that there is no command to use musical instruments in the New Testament, so we shouldn't. But obviously, you could turn that phrase and, and that statement around, right, and say the opposite. There is no command or uh, forbidding the use of musical instruments, so uh, if it helped enhance worship, then why wouldn't you? And then the third reason says, well, there's no example of it. We don't see it happening in the New Testament church. And if they didn't do it in the New Testament church and we want to be a biblical church, we should do it just like them. So that means we shouldn't do it. But that is an argument from silence. 
So are we supposed to abstain from everything that the Bible doesn't specifically address or, or make mention of? Can we do in church only those things that are specifically commanded? I mean, if so, if that's the logic, the reasoning you're going to follow, then there's a lot of things in church that we do that you can't do. You could not make announcements in church because there's no command or example of that ever being done. You couldn't have a pulpit or a stage or even a privately owned building like this in which to meet because none of those things are seen or commanded in the New Testament. You see, a, a, an argument from silence or from not having a specific command to do it is a very weak argument. Now, what we do know is that we very much have a specific command, both in the Old and the New Testament, to praise God. And, and as a means, uh, we praise Him as a means of worshiping Him. And, and the Psalms give us uh, various methods of praising God that we can employ. Um, things like, like singing and, and instruments and shouting and clapping your hands, raising your hands, uh, all these types of things. Just, just one example of, of how, what, how God inspired us to be able to worship Him comes from Psalm 150. Listen to this. It says, Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Don't tell anybody that God said you could actually praise Him through dancing. Okay. Praise Him with the stringed instruments and with pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Cymbals, percussion instruments, uh, drums. What kind of drums? Loud drums. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, resounding Drums. You know what that means? That means the ones that give you a headache after you, you listen to it. You, you praise God with these. The, the whole issue, this whole issue uh, with music, like so many others, comes back to what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, form versus function. We have the function given to us in Scripture, the function of praising God and worshiping Him, and, and very specifically through song, one means of worshiping Him, through songs. And if, you know, God was really worried about the form, then He would have given us specific guidelines on how to do that. Uh, in the Old Testament, you do find some very specific guidelines on the temple worship, but not when it comes in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ to praising Him. He left it wide open. And, and therefore, we can praise Him creatively and we can do it with or without instruments. So getting back now to our original question, what is acceptable worship? Well, from the verses we looked at, obviously, singing and music is definitely a part of it, but is worship limited to that? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. Romans 12.1 makes this case very clear. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, again, 
explaining this verse, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. So we're just going to uh, look at it very brief. Here's, here's what it is. According to this verse, worship is giving your body, presenting your body to God as a sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice. And what that basically means is that everything you do is or can be or should be an act of worship because as near as I can tell, you can't do anything without your body. You know, think about it. You're not getting anywhere without your body. And that's your spiritual service of worship to God, to give your body everything you do to God. So, so yeah, worship is, is coming to church to sing and to pray and presenting your offering. It's listening to sermons and fellowshipping and taking communion. But it's not just church stuff and acceptable Service of worship is when you do the dishes and you drive your car and you serve somebody in need and you volunteer at community events and everything else you do. See, it's, it's worship when you're doing whatever you do as unto the Lord. And you say, well, what's that mean? How do you do that? It's basically saying, God, I want to honor you in, in how I do this. And when you say that, you're worshiping. And guess what? We're supposed to say that for everything you do. When you get up to go to work in the morning, whatever you do throughout the day, so we, we may have to, to do a little bit of thinking about what it means, what it looks like, how that would actually work uh, to worship God while you're driving or volunteering at a school basketball game, or serving the food bank. But you see, all your life is worship because it's everything you do with your body. You're presenting it to God and saying, God, I want to honor you in doing this. And that would then lead into the next segment, of course. How you handle your money, take care of your finances, is also an act of worship. And there are a lot of instructions given in, in Scripture about how God desires us to handle our money, but that was not the question that I received. I just simply received uh, the question, uh, why do we pass an offering plate and what's an acceptable tithe? And so uh, let's start with tithing. That word tithe, of course, uh, means a tenth. And, and therefore, many churches uh, teach that Christians are required to give a tenth, 10% of their income to God. And, and therefore, I have come across a whole lot of people who feel really guilty because they either can't or don't give that much money. Now, giving, giving a, a tenth, a tithe, is based on a misapplication of some Old Testament law and practices. In fact, in the Old Testament, what many people fail to understand is that there were three different tithes, tenths, that were required of the people. The first tithe was called the temple tithe, the temple tax, and it was used to cover the expenses of the temple and of the worship service and the upkeep and also then to provide a living for the priests. The second tithe was actually used by the families and it was set aside to pay for the expenses of the three main annual religious feasts that everyone was required to attend and be part of in Jerusalem. 
And then the third tithe was specifically for helping the poor and the needy, uh, what we would call a benevolence fund today. And that tithe was only collected every third year, uh, depending on your tribe, every third year. So every year they were getting some of it, but for you it would be every third year. So if you add that all up together, every Jew then was required to give 23 and a third percent of their income every year in tithes. And those who are trying to teach that as a church, we are required to do 10% uh, tithing, um, claim that that's still in force because... Uh, or, or, or that the temp of those three tithes, only the temple tithe is still in force. And, and they have a couple of different arguments for that, but the main one is because it happened before the laws of tithing were given. Um, and, and see, they base that on one incident, if you're familiar with it in the Old Testament, where Abraham uh, gave 10% uh, to a priest by the name of Melchizedek. And they'll say, since that happened prior to the law, uh, before that, that shows that that's a principle that is in force for all of us uh, at all the time. It's not part of the law. There's two uh, big problems with that, though. The first is what they are doing is they are taking a descriptive passage and making it prescriptive for today right? They're taking an account of this is what happened and saying because that's what happened, it always has to happen for us. But there is no place either in that passage, in that story at all, if you read through that in the Old Testament, or anywhere else in Scripture that says, hey, you're supposed to do what Abraham did. And even if there was a verse that says, hey, you're supposed to follow Abraham's example, did you pay attention to what his example was? I mean, if, if we follow that, uh, Abraham did not give a, a tithe from his income or his own earnings. In fact, there's no record that Abraham ever gave Melchizedek any money that he had earned himself at any other time. Uh, this all came from the spoils of war. It, it was a one-time uh, gift from extra money that Abraham had gained after five kings had come into the land and, and wrecked some havoc and captured uh, Abraham's nephew Lot and, and was hauling him off. And Abraham decided he's going to go do something about it, got all his fighting men together, and he went and defeated those five kings and massacred them and took all the spoils of war and brought them back and gave a tenth of that to Melchizedek. So if we're going to follow Abraham's uh, example, then that means you don't give uh, a tenth of, of your earnings uh, to, to God, uh, but rather you only use money that you get when you beat somebody up and take all their stuff. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure God doesn't want us to do that. It is clear from the New Testament that God does expect us to give. Give of our finances for the support of the church, for the advancement of the gospel, and that we should always be ready and willing to help the poor and the needy. In fact, caring for the poor and, and the needy is, is uh, repeated and emphasized way more often than the idea 
of supporting uh, a pastor, paying a pastor, or supporting missions or doing the church. And, and that's why uh, we have those power of one boxes in the back. I've always been a little bit worried about those boxes for new people that come in or visitors, this kind of stuff, and they'll look at those boxes, and then we pass the offering plate later, and they're like, hey, what's the deal? Are you guys taking two offerings here and doing this type of thing? Uh, this kind of, and, and, and it's not that. The, the power of one is something we do 100 uh, percent to help uh, people in need uh, and and the whole idea behind that is you just give one dollar each person give one dollar every week and put in that box and 100 percent of that is used uh, f for needs that come uh, to us and this year alone we have we've helped uh, uh, powered from being turned off in someone's house we've filled propane tanks we've helped with gas uh, money to medical appointments helped with medicine we've helped with clothing we've helped with food uh, that's what we do with that that power of one that's that's strictly benevolence but in terms of the offering how does a person know then how much they should give if we're not under the law of tithing and it's actually really quite simple, and it's clearly laid out for us uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. Two verses in particular establish how we should go about uh, doing this, how much we should give. The, the first is in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, and it says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable. It, talking about the gift you're giving. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what they don't have. I've run into... Uh, so many people who were really worried that God was mad at them because they weren't giving 10% and, and they would really like to have been able to give that amount. They wanted to, but, but life w was seeming to overwhelm them and after paying bills, they just didn't have that much to give. And I, I tell them, hey, give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Now, please understand God does give us a, a, an immense amount of instruction, practical uh, guidelines for financial management that if you follow those things, those biblical principles, then you will normally have money available for giving, 10% and beyond what you, whatever you'd want to get. But not always. I mean, you can do everything right and catastrophe can hit and wipe you out. See, we live in a broken world. See, what is more important to God than the amount you give is the first part of that verse, your heart. Is there a readiness to give? Is there a desire to be giving to God? Because, see, giving is supposed to be an act of worship. It, it means honoring God uh, and expressing both your thanksgiving to him and, and your trust that he is going to take care of you. And God is always far more interested in your heart than he is some mechanical adherence to the letter of the law. And that's why he makes giving a matter of the heart rather than law. What you give is actually a reflection of your relationship with God and your desire to worship and honor Him. So if the readiness is there, if that's what your heart really is saying, well then how much should you give? And that's where the second verse comes in. 
each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, meaning under a specific rule or guideline of having to give this much. For God loves a cheerful giver. See, the amount is what you purpose in your heart. God, this is what I want to do. Based on what you have, not what you don't have, so that you can give it fully and joyfully. And you know, if what you give, when you give out of the sincere love for God, a desire to honor Him with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving for all that He has done for you, that's what pleases God's heart. It's not the amount given, but the heart of the giver that really matters. So why do we pass an offering plate? Why not? It's the function, not the form. And, and that's just a form that gives you the opportunity to fulfill that function. It doesn't matter how it's done. It could be done any other number of ways. You could give online if you want. You, you can give online. The church has set that up here recently because people have asked about that for when they're gone or when other things like that. And so it doesn't matter how you give. It's, it's that reflection of your heart to God. Now, the final questions we have uh, to look at uh, have to do with membership and baptism. Do you have to be baptized to be a member? And why a member? What do, does it mean? And so baptized, the short answer to that is no. We believe that baptism is an obedient response to salvation. In other words, when a person by faith, comes to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. In response to that prayer of faith that they give God, God washes them clean, gives them eternal life. No works are involved at all. There is nothing you can do to earn salvation, including even religious works, such as baptism. However, Jesus did command his followers to be baptized as a, a visible symbol of their faith in him and their commitment to following uh, Jesus. And therefore, we do as a church urge every true believer to be baptized as, as an act of obedience and, and worship. But as a church, we have determined we don't want to make it any harder to be a member of our church than it is to be a member of the family of God. And therefore, it is based upon your profession and confession of faith in Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. And some people then will say, well, membership, I mean, that's not even in the Bible anywhere. So why do you even do that as a church? And we could get into, you know, some long, complicated answers about that, but we're not. We're going to keep it short, sweet, and simple. Membership uh, allows us to make sure as far as humanly possible that those who are leading and making decisions for the church are true believers who are committed both to Jesus Christ and to the work and ministry of this local body of believers. That's really all membership is in a nutshell. You know, anybody, anybody is welcome to attend and be part of our church. 
there are many opportunities to get connected and be a part of what we're doing and even share in a lot of ministry opportunities that are open to all. But when it comes to those who will be leading, those who are going to be teaching and training our children and youth and adults, we want to assure to the best of our ability that they are genuine followers of Jesus who are willing to be committed and accountable to the shepherds, the elders, and to the institution that God has designed to be his conduit for reaching the world, which is the church. And the best way to do that is through membership. Membership is, is a way of putting your name on the dotted line and saying, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm committed to do. It has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation or how good of a Christian you are. Membership is not going to impress God. But you know what? In a low-commitment world, Membership does establish a firm foundation for fellowship, for ministry, and for life together as believers. And doing life together is way better than trying to do it on your own. Now, for those of you that are really sharp, you may have remembered that I skipped one question in that list of questions I read at the beginning. How should we behave in church? I think we should behave like members of the family of God who live in a broken world and therefore really need one another but who understand that we are bound for glory. That's how we should behave. Let's pray. Father God, again, we're so thankful for the guidelines, the direction, the instruction that your word gives. We're thankful for the freedom that we have in so many areas. But God, our freedom is to worship and to follow you, to give our lives to you. God, we we desire to honor you in what we say and what we do as individuals, as a church. That's our desire. And so God, help us as we follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name.